Will you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy? <clears throat> 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter three, and if you are able, if you can stand with me for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Starting in verse one, we're going to go to the middle <clears throat> of chapter four. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, where people will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep in their households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jan and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a life, a godly life in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is a judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. 
do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. At the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but to also to all who have loved his appearing. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. God, this is your word. God, these are the very words that have been breathed out by you. Help us, God, to understand that today. Help us, God, to see things. Right now, God, that we on our own cannot see. I pray today, God, that you would open blinded minds. And Lord, I am painfully aware right now. I am profoundly aware that nothing that I say has the power to produce spiritual transformation. But God, when you speak, miracles happen. When you speak, blinded eyes see. When you speak, the hardest of hearts melt like snow. God, Holy Spirit, come. Take your word. Jesus, take your word. And I pray, God, that you would plant it in every heart. That, God, that you would transform our hearts and renew our minds so that we would no longer be conformed to the patterns of this world, but God, that we would be transformed as we look upon your word. And God, we come against the evil one right now who is doing everything in his power to keep us from seeing you in your truth. So in the authority that is ours in Jesus, we bind the evil one and his demonic forces. And we command you, get out, leave. Jesus, have your place, take your place, your rightful place in our midst. And God, we commit our hearts. We commit this time into your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me start by giving you the context of our passage this morning. Paul's writing this from prison. In fact, these are his last words. He knows that death is near. God has made it known to him that his end has come. And tradition tells us that not long after writing this letter, Paul was beheaded. So the last letter he would write, he writes to Timothy, whom he loved, who he called my true son in the faith. 
But the last letter he writes, he writes to Timothy and he gives him one final exhortation. Let me pause here and ask, if you knew that you were going to die and you had one final letter to write or one last message to record, whether it was to a friend, a parent, a spouse, to your children, what would you say? What is the last thing you would want to impart to them before you left? For Paul, it was this. Timothy, be faithful. Be faithful to the Lord and to his call upon your life. Timothy, be faithful to his word. Timothy, hold fast to this book. Hold fast to its truth, especially in the face of hardship because hardship is coming. Timothy, it's going to get bad. It's going to get really bad, and the only way you're going to make it is by holding fast to this book. So, Timothy, my son, be faithful to God's word in your life. That was Paul's final exhortation, and that's what our passage this morning is all about. And in the opening verses, he tells him and us what it's going to be like. Paul says the last days will be marked by difficulty. Now, that is a mild translation. This word is translated elsewhere in the New Testament as fierce. Paul says the last days will be marked by fierceness. The societal degradation of those days is going to be scary. And he goes on to describe in great detail what people in the last days are going to be like. And he gives 19 characteristics starting in verse 2. Look at it again. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. That reads like a summary of the 6 o'clock news, does it not? If that's not a description of our world today, I don't know what is. How many of you know, how many of you believe that we are living in the last days? There is no doubt in my mind. I am absolutely convinced that we are living in the last days. And I won't get into it now, but there's just too much taking place in our world that aligns with what Scripture says will take place before Christ returns. One of which is what we see here, what people are going to be like in the last days. And Paul says they're going to be lovers of self. That's the first characteristic. One commentator said this first one is the sewer pipe through which all the other garbage, all the other characteristics flow. Why do we love money? Because we love ourselves and want to spend it on ourselves. Why are we proud? Why are we arrogant? Same reason, because we love ourselves. Go down the entire list. All of it is because we are obsessed with the self. 
Sociologists tell us that this is the most narcissistic society in the history of mankind, and it's not even close. They say we are living in the most self-absorbed, self-centered generation ever. Guys, think about that. I mean, we live in a day where we have a digital page dedicated to who? Ourselves. We have all kinds of social media accounts, right? Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, just to name a few where we talk about who? Ourselves. Showcasing ourselves, presenting ourselves, telling people how good we look, how amazing our lives are, and we think it's normal. You're abnormal if you're not doing that. But the same sociologists are telling us that we are the most depressed generation ever. We are the most depressed, anxiety-ridden, lonely generation in the history of the world. I just read an article last month, and some of you may have seen this, that said that between 2017 through 2021, hopelessness among teenage girls rose from 37% to 57 percent two out of three girls in america two out of three are now hopeless to the point that one out of five are considering suicide this is crazy scary this is our present reality parents you need to be aware of this But the Bible says this is what people are going to be like in the last days. They're going to be lovers of self, ungrateful, unholy, lovers of pleasure, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Now, here's the most distressing part in all this. Paul's not talking about the world. He's talking about the church. Don't miss this. He's not talking about atheists and unbelievers here, people who have nothing to do with God. He's talking about people who profess Christ. Paul here is warning Timothy of the dangers within, not without. And we know that because of the context and what he says in the subsequent verses. Verse 5, they have the appearance of godliness. That is, they're religious. These are people who go to church. These are people who are engaged in religious activities, but when you pull back the covers, there is no power of God. There is no inner transformation that testifies to the power of God in their lives. Paul says in verse 6 that these are people who pray on the weak and oppose the truth. Verse 8, their minds have been corrupted and they are disqualified regarding the faith. And then in verse 13, he calls them what they really are, evil. These are evil people. They're imposters, says Paul. They claim to represent God and his truth when in reality, they're instruments of Satan and his lies. And in the same verse, he says, it's only going to get worse. He says, it's going to go from bad to worse in the way they deceive and are deceived in the way they lead people astray. This is going to be rampant in the last days. And the only way you're going to make it, Paul says, the only way you're going to withstand the onslaught, Timothy, is by holding fast to this book. 
by making this word, by making God's word central to your life and making it central in the church. And Paul goes on to tell us why the Bible must be central in our lives in the first is this. Because it's the only means of salvation. Because it's the only means of salvation. Look at verse 13, chapter 3. While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And now from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Paul says evil men and imposters will be everywhere. But Timothy, you stand on the word that you've been taught from childhood by your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. Do not depart from it. Do not depart from it because it is the only thing that will make you wise for salvation. And this is what Paul elaborates in Romans 10, right? He says the only way people are going to be saved is by placing their faith in Jesus. But he says, how will people put their faith in Jesus if they never hear of Jesus? And then he says in verse 17, faith comes by hearing. And hearing through what? The word of Christ. In other words, in other words, listen. There can be no faith apart from this book. There can be no faith apart from the Bible. That is why this book is absolutely essential. The Word of God has a faith-inducing, life-giving power to it. And without it, there can be no faith, period. Oh, guys, this is huge. This has massive implications. We live in a day where preachers are told to keep things positive. Stay away from wrath, they say. Stay away from judgment. Just talk about love. Talk about mercy. Stop talking so much about sin and repentance. Just, just tell the people how God loves them just the way they are. Now, there's no doubt about it. This book contains the good news of God's amazing love towards sinners. Absolutely it does. But this book also contains the terrifying news of God's wrath toward those who do not turn from their sin. And we have to talk about that. And if we don't, if we know this but say nothing, then we are accountable to God. This is why Paul said in Acts 20, 26, Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of your blood. Paul says to the people at Ephesus, I'm innocent of your blood, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul says, I'm innocent of your blood. He says, if you're lost for all eternity, it's not because I didn't warn you. No, I warned you with everything in me of the dangers of unrepentance. I taught you the whole scriptures, the whole gospel. I didn't pull back. I didn't shrink back from any of it out of fear that you'd be offended or turned off. Do we realize what's at stake here? I hear it all the time. If you want your church to grow numerically, you got to keep it light. 
We got to keep it positive. We got to keep it uplifting. Tell a lot of stories. And make sure to include a few jokes in there. And definitely don't go past 30 minutes. Good luck with that here. 30 minutes? That's Pastor Reed's intro. I just made a joke. You see that? I just made a joke. But here's what I know. Here's what I know. I know that every time I've come up here, there are people entangled in all kinds of sin. Every time I'm up here, there are people who think they're Christian because they grew up in church or go to church but have no vital relationship with God. Every time I'm up here, there are people headed for a godless eternity in hell if they do not turn from their sin. And I'm supposed to come up here and tell a joke. Tell some stories to keep it interesting. Do we realize, do we realize what's at stake here? 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And in verse 6, verse 6 he says, God is shining his light into hearts by showing them the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. What does that mean? What is Paul saying here? What he's saying is that there's a battle taking place between the God of this world and the one true God. And Satan is doing everything in his power to blind people from the truth. That the God of the universe is infinitely holy. And that our sins are an infinite offense to him. Therefore, we are deserving of infinite wrath. But that God is so infinitely loving and infinitely merciful that he sent his own son to pay the penalty for our sins. And all who put their trust in him will be saved. The God of this world is doing everything he can to keep people from seeing that. But Paul says, God is shining light in our hearts. How? Verse 5, right in the middle, he says, we preach Christ. We preach the one who died on the cross and rose to conquer the grave. And if preaching Christ and his word is what does that, then no, I will not come up here and tell a bunch of stories and give you some casual talk about God. I will not do that. Because there is no faith apart from this book. We see another reason the Bible must be central in the church and in our lives. And that is this. Because it's God's word. Because it's God's word. Verse 16, Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Guys, this is one of the most important statements in the entire Bible. All scripture, not some, not even most, all scripture is breathed out by God. That phrase, breathed out by God, in one word, is one word in Greek, diabnustos, God breathed. So the words contained in this book are breathed out by God so as to make them God's own words. Just pause for a moment and let that sink in. What you are holding in your hands right now is the very word of God. Guys, let that land. This is the very breath of God himself. This is why when Ezra opened the scrolls and read from the law, we are told that the people wept. They trembled 
at his word. This is why Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away, but not an iota, not a dot of the law will pass away. Jesus says not a dot, not a single dot, not, a, not the smallest stroke, not a smidgen of ink in this book will ever pass away. Why? Because heaven and earth are created things. But this is Vox Day, the voice of God himself. This is why when the Bible speaks, God speaks. I'm going to say that again. When the Bible speaks, men and women, God speaks. If this really is God's word, and this is where the rubber meets the road, right? If this really is God's word, then this book has full authority over our lives. And not only in the areas we say it does. If God really is the author, if we really believe that God has authored this book, then this book has authority. That's where it comes from. Author authority. Then this book has authority over my life. And it is to shape and direct how I view everything in this world. Everything. But sadly, that is not what I see in the church today. What I see increasingly is Christians picking and choosing which parts of the Bible they deem authoritative. Which parts they're willing to submit to, and it's usually the areas where they agree with what it says. The areas that comport with their own personal beliefs. And it is this very mindset that has given birth to an entire movement that is taking our nation by storm. I'm talking about progressive Christianity. And this is something, guys, that we are constantly sounding the alarm on because as far as I'm concerned, this is the single greatest threat to the church today. The greatest threat to the true church of Jesus Christ is not persecution. It's this. It's progressive Christianity. Now, as the name indi indicates, it's a movement that seeks to progress beyond the Christianity we have known since the days of Christ. It sees itself, progressive Christians see themselves as less archaic, less primitive, and more enlightened in their understanding of God. And here's the key marker of progressive churches. You ready? A low view of scripture. Without fail. Without fail, they have a low view of scripture. To progressive Christians, the Bible is not the inspired, authoritative word of God. Then what is it? What is the Bible to progressive Christians? The Bible to them is a collection of books as people in those days understood God in their own culture. Don't miss this. The Bible to them is a book about how ancient people understood God in the times and the places in which they lived. So what we have to do now is to hear from God in our time and in our culture and see which parts of this book are divine and which parts are human. Which parts apply to us and which parts don't. And who makes that call? Well, you do, of course. I do. We decide for ourselves which parts of the Bible are authoritative and which parts aren't. 
A perfect example of this is what progressive minister Nadia Bowles-Weber says about sexuality. And this is a topic they champion. They champion sexual freedom. But she says the view that the church has held for over 2,000 years needs a complete overhaul. For instance, teaching young people to wait to have sex until they are married is harmful and repressive. Not surprisingly, she affirms same-sex relationships, gender nonconformity, abortion. Even moderate pornography use is good and healthy, she says. And she tells a story of one of her parishioners, a lesbian, who found sexual healing and wholeness. Elisa Childers recounts the story in her book, Another Gospel. Standing in front of the fire pit, she tore eight pages out of her Bible, ones that directly address homosexuality. One by one, she threw them into the flames, setting herself free from their edicts and the rigid church environment in which she grew up. Then she tore out the four Gospels, clutched them to her heart, and heaved the rest of the Bible into the fire. Now let me say this. We love those in the LGBTQIA community. We do. These are precious lives who bear the image of God and are worthy of our dignity, our respect, and our love. And we desire to reflect Christ and his love, his grace, and truth to them. We especially love those in our own community who struggle with same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria. We want to continue to be a loving, supportive, safe environment for them to live out their true identity in Christ. But what I just shared is what hordes of people are doing today with the Bible. They are discarding anything that doesn't suit their tastes. Anything that doesn't align with their own personal beliefs. But the progressive movement is a movement that fits the ethos of our day. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. You and I live in what's called a postmodern world. We live in a culture that rejects objective truth and embraces feelings over facts. Personal experience is what matters today. Personal experience is what matters most. Personal experience is king. No one today asks if something is true. The question today is whether it's true for me. Resulting in a society that has no desire to sort the true from the false. So at every turn we are told, live your truth. Whatever that may be, live your truth. We have gone from the belief that everyone has a right to his or her opinion to the notion that every opinion is equally right. No matter how contradictory or logical or devoid of reality it is. Now it is in this world that we as Christians are called to stand for truth. Capital T, truth. And guys, here's the nature of truth that you need to know. Listen. Truth isn't something you create. Truth isn't something you invent. It's something you discover. And this is why the mantra, live your truth, doesn't hold water. See, truth is a thought 
a statement or an opinion that lines up with reality. That's it. It's a thought, statement, or opinion that lines up with reality. If, we, if what we think, say, or believe lines up with reality, then it's true. If it doesn't, then it's not. And if something is true, hear me. If something is true, then it's true for all people, in all places, at all times. It doesn't change. It's not something that changes no matter how much a person's belief about it does. It doesn't change because of how it makes someone feel. For example, 5 plus 5 is what? 10. It's 10 in every country, in every culture, in every people group, in every time period. 5 plus 5 doesn't become 12 because I don't like the number 10. I just don't like 10. 10 rubs me the wrong way. I don't like 10, so I'm going to make it 12. I'm sorry, but that does not fly. That is not how truth works. It is entirely unaffected by how you feel about it. You may not like it. You may not like it, but it has zero effect on what is actually true. Here's why all of this matters. Christianity is is a belief system that stands or falls on truth. On objective truth. Listen, Christianity is not a philosophy. It's not. It is not a set of moral teachings. It is about entering into a relationship with the God of the universe through the cross of Christ. And the whole thing depends. The whole thing rides on the resurrection. As something that actually happened in human history. An objective reality. This is why Paul spends the bulk of 1 Corinthians 15 defending the truth of the resurrection, that it is something that actually happened. He said, if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Paul said, if if Christ had not been raised, then we are the most pathetic people on earth because we have staked our entire lives, our eternal destiny on a lie. Now compare that with with what a couple of popular progressive authors have said. Jen Hatmaker, who is wildly popular now, says, I lack all objectivity. I evaluate the merit of an idea based on how it bears upon actual people. Rachel Hollis, another popular author, said this, if you feel trapped by your identity because you know it is hurting you, break free. And do the work to claim the truth that fits you now. No one gets to define you but you. These women openly admit that they they determine truth by what? By how it makes someone feel. So if something in the Bible makes you feel bad, if something you read in this book makes you feel uncomfortable, then you can just disregard it. Oh, there's never been a time in the history of our world where it has been more important to stand on truth, to be tethered to truth. A recent study concluded that most of Gen Z, most of Gen Z, which is everyone born from the late 90s on, believes in moral relativism. That morality is relative, that it's fluid, that it changes over time. So what's right or wrong, good or bad, depends on what a person, or depends on what truth a person lives by. 
And what's alarming is that this mindset has crept into the church where we now have believers, Christians, thinking and believing the same. In fact, according to a 2020 study by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, 46%, 46% of people who attend evangelical churches reject the idea of absolute moral truth. Nearly half of all people in the churches in America believe that truth and morality are relative to what an individual believes. Guys, this is the state of the church in America. We have bought into the ideologies of our world, hook, line, and sinker. A.W. Tozer was prophetic when he said too much of contemporary Christianity is borrowed from the philosophies of the world and even other religions. Phrases and models that on the surface look great but are not rooted in truth. Phrases and models like live your truth or you shouldn't judge, which is another favorite mantra of ours. You ever hear that one? You shouldn't judge. Who are you to judge another person? And when they say that, what are they saying? They're saying we we should never be critical of another's moral choices. And of course, I'll always recite their favorite verse of the Bible, Matthew 7, 1, where Jesus says, judge not, that you not be judged. See, Jesus says you shouldn't judge. End of conversation. But what's funny to me is that they never quote the next verse. They never quote the verse that comes right after where Jesus says, first take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, make sure your judgment isn't hypocritical. That's what Jesus is saying. Make sure your judgment isn't hypocritical. Don't you point out the sin in your brother's eye, in your brother's life, before confronting the bigger sin in your own life. But the whole point is to help your brother take the speck out of his eye, which requires you to make a judgment that it's actually there and that it's hurting him. And just a few verses later, Jesus tells us how we are to recognize false teachers in our midst, and that is by what? By the fruit. By the fruit that they bear. So clearly we are to make judgments on whether they are true or false, whether what they're teaching is true or false, based on the fruit that we see. In their lives. I'll give you one more. Let me address one more that's championed by progressive Christians today. And it's this. The God I worship is a God of love. The God I worship is a God of love. I'm all about love. Because the God I worship is a God of love. The Bible says God is love. The Bible says God is love. And the loving God accepts everyone for who they are. Regardless of how they live. The choices they make. Now, there's no doubt about it. God is love. The God of the Bible is profoundly, astoundingly loving. He is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. That much is clear. But it also needs to be made clear that the love of God does not swallow up the other divine attributes. In other words, the love of God is not more central to his identity than his other attributes. So the love of God, that God is love, does not carry more weight than God is holy or God is righteous. It does not. Just as important as this, we cannot take our own cultural understanding of love and attribute it to God. We can't do that. We can't define love any way we wish and say 
that's who God is. No, we must first understand who God is, and then we can say, this is what love is. And the Bible tells us clearly, unmistakably, that God in this love does not tolerate all things. He doesn't. God cannot affirm, he cannot celebrate anything that contradicts his holiness. Anything that goes against his will. Nowhere in the Bible does the love of God make sin acceptable. Nowhere. In fact, we see Jesus in Revelation 2 coming down hard on the church in Thyatira. Why? Because they tolerated a woman named Jezebel who was leading people into sexual sin. And Jesus says to the church, your tolerance is not love, it's unfaithfulness. It's unfaithfulness to me. Oh, what a rebuke. What a rebuke to those who tolerate sin and make it acceptable in the name of love. And yet that is what hordes of people in the church today are doing. It should come as no surprise to us then that some of the fastest growing churches in our city and in our nation are progressive churches. People are flocking to them. But Paul said this is what would happen in the last days. Look at what he says in chapter 4, verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myth. Men and women, that time has come. The time is now. Guys, this is exactly what we're seeing take place right now. There are churches today that will tell you whatever you want to hear. And to be honest with you, it's not hard to do that. In fact, I can make this book say anything I want. I'm totally serious about this. I can make this book say anything I want. Give me a topic. You want to you have an affair? You want to justify adultery? I'll show you how to proof text that. I'll find some obscure passage somewhere and talk about some word that, that can mean five different things and prove to you from this book why sleeping with someone who's not your spouse is fine with God. Listen, if you want something to be true, if you want something to be true, you can find someone with a PhD in Bible to tell you whatever you want to hear. You want to get a divorce? I can find you a book right now on Amazon. Right now. I can find you a book on Amazon that will tell you that God is good with divorce under any condition. You don't like the concept of hell? You don't like, you don't like the idea of hell? I will find you someone with a PhD in the Bible to tell you that there is no hell. That there is no wrath. That there is no coming judgment. The time has come. The time is now. Francis Schaeffer said this. We as Bible-believing evangelical Christians are locked in a battle. This is not a friendly gentleman's discussion. It is a life and death conflict between the spiritual hosts of wickedness and those who claim the name of Christ. But do we really believe that we are in a life and death battle? Do we really believe that the part we play in the battle has consequences for whether or not men and women will spend eternity in hell? 
or whether or not those who live will live in a climate of moral perversion and degradation. Sadly, we must say that very few, very few in the evangelical world have acted as if these things are true. Where is the clear voice speaking to the crucial issues of the day with distinctively biblical Christian answers? With tears, we must say that it is not there and that a large segment of the evangelical world has become seduced by the worldly spirit of the present age. And more than this, we can expect the future to be a further disaster if the evangelical world does not take a stand for biblical truth and morality in the full spectrum of life. May this not be said of us. May this not be said of living way. May it be said of us that we are a clear voice speaking to the crucial issues of the day with distinctively biblical answers. May it be said of us that we are a people who would take a stand for biblical truth and morality no matter what, no matter the cost. Because make no mistake, there will be a cost. You stand for God today in this cancel culture, there will be a price to pay. Oh, make no mistake. There will be a price to pay. You're going to be ostracized. You're going to be pushed out. You're going to be marginalized. You're going to be maligned. You're going to be persecuted. And that's exactly what Paul says will take place in chapter 3, verse 12. He says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not maybe. Will be. Guys, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. It's going to come. Now, persecution here in the West may not look like the persecution that's taking place right now all over the world where Christians are being killed, where they're literally dying for their faith. But it's coming. It's coming. And in, in the West, it comes in the form of political, legal, cultural opposition and oppression. But it's coming. Guys, it's going to get hard. It's going to get really hard. Mark my words. It's going to be really hard to be a Christian in the coming days. You take a stand for God. You take a stand for God's word. The truth of God is revealed in this book. They're going to crucify you. Figuratively. They're going to excoriate you. And Jesus promised that, did he not? Jesus said, you want to follow me? All men will hate you because of me. All men will hate you on account of me. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they hate, it, if they hate you, it's because they hated me first. Jesus said it's going to come. Are you hearing this? Perhaps that's the reason so many in the church are jumping over to progressive Christianity because the world loves them. And perhaps that's the reason I see so many believers getting behind those causes that are going to be least costly. Listen, it takes no courage to decry the evils of racism. It takes no courage to decry 
the exploitation of women and children in human trafficking. Everybody gets behind those things. But it takes courage, real courage, godly courage to take a stand on the most controversial issues of our day. Things like sexuality, sanctity of life, abortion, a gender ideology. I've said this before, and I'm going to say this until the day I die. Guys, this is going to be one of the greatest tests of faithfulness in our generation. This will be one of the greatest tests of faithfulness in our generation. You know why? Because faithfulness to Jesus is tested in those things that our culture finds most offensive. And I pray that we would be a people that stand for God's truth no matter what, no matter the cost. And here's why we should stand. Here's why we need to take a stand for God and his truth no matter what. Because judgment is coming. Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Paul says, Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. That is, whether it's convenient or not, whether they receive it or not, in every season, in every situation, in every circumstance, preach the word. Why? Why? Because you know Christ is coming back. The judge is coming to judge the living and the dead. I know this is not a popular thing to say that God is going to judge people. You ever read this book? You ever read this book? It's all over. You ever look at all the ways that God has judged people throughout human history? I mean, there was a flood, right? And then you got plagues, and then you got serpents. You got the earth opening up and swallowing people whole. You got fire coming down from heaven, consuming people alive. You see this page after page after page after page. Oh, but that's the Old Testament, they say. Yeah, because by Revelation, God sure mellows out. You ever read Revelation? The most horrific Terrifying judgments of God are found in the last book of the New Testament. And and the description of Jesus coming back to judge the earth, it's not very comforting. I don't know if you've read this. But Revelation 19.12 says his eyes are a flame of fire. And his robe in verse 13 is dipped in blood. Now, this is not a reference to the blood he shed on the cross. It's not a picture of redemption. It's a picture of judgment. The blood here is a reference to the blood of his slaughtered enemies. This is the picture of Jesus we are given of him returning to judge the earth. And then in chapter 20, we see the great white throne judgment where the dead from every age are raised back to life to face judgment. 
And on that day, every single person who has ever lived will go to one of two places. That's it. Eternal punishment or eternal life. Eternal life or eternal torment. Guys, here's what you are not going to see. Hear me. On that day, as people stand before the judge, you will not see Jesus ask people, did you live your truth? You know what he's going to ask? Did you live according to mine? Did you live according to my word? Did you live according to my truth? Jesus said in John 12, 14, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. My word that I've spoken will judge him on that last day. Jesus says, my word My word will judge humanity as he stand before me on that last day. Are you hearing this? The word of God will be our judge. This is why our value, our third value as a church, is unapologetic proclamation of Scripture. We are committed to proclaiming this book in all its truth, in all its beauty, in all its splendor, without apology and without compromise because eternity hangs in the balance. Seriously. Eternity is riding on this. This is not something to trifle with. All of us, every single one of us in this room, every single person within the sound of my voice, We're either going to eternal torment or eternal life based on how we respond to this book, to this word, and the one who gave it. That's why the last thing we need, the last thing we need when we come together as a church is to hear a bunch of opinions. Oh, it's sad to me that there are churches today that do everything but teach this book. I've heard entire sermons that barely mention the scriptures. It's merely the springboard. It's just a springboard by which they jump into their own pool of thoughts and opinions. But my job as a preacher, Pastor Ray's job as a preacher, is just to open up this book and tell you what it says. That's it. That's it. And that's our commitment to you. And church, I want to say this, and I want to say this as clearly, clearly as I can. If what someone says up here does not line up with what God's word says, then don't listen to a thing they say. Seriously. Don't listen to me. Don't listen to anybody who stands before you and says things that are not aligned with scripture. Always test what is being said by the word. Test the things that I, that I say by this book. But, but, if what is being said is coming from this word and is rightly divided, I urge you listen with everything you've got. Listen with everything you've got. Listen as if your life depends on it because in many ways it does. I was praying for you this week. I was praying for us. 
And I pray that we would be a people of this book. I was praying that we would be a people who love this book. A people who are in the word. Reading it. Studying it. Meditating on it. Memorizing it. Consuming it. Being shaped by it. Why? Because there's a tidal wave coming. Guys, there's a tsunami coming, a tsunami of heresy and apostasy. Moral relativism is coming against the church. Hordes of people are getting swept up in it. Guys, listen, if you're not a student of this book, if you don't know it, I don't know how you're going to make it. I really don't. And I'm not exaggerating here. This is not hyperbole. If you are not a student of this book, I don't know how you're going to make it. I don't know how our kids are going to make it. And as a parent, this stuff keeps me up at night, man. Oh, if you think it's bad now, if you think it's I look at all that our society is pushing, all that's being promoted today in our society, in our world, all the lines that are being blurred constantly, left and right, where we don't know our left from our right, I look at all that stuff and I shudder. I look at all that stuff and I'm like, we're not going to last much longer. We can't. Not at the rate we're moving. We're not going to oh, be around much longer. Unless my kids, unless your kids know this book and have the Spirit of God living in them, what hope do they have? What hope, do they, what hope do any of us have? But this word was not given so that we would be terrified of the future. That's not why it was given. It was given so that you and I would be aware of what is going to take place. And so that we would be sober-minded, as Paul tells Timothy, so that we can wake up. So that we can wake up because the church in many ways is asleep. The church is asleep at the wheel. We're like that frog in the kettle that's being slowly boiled alive and we don't even know it. And many won't until it's too late. Church, we got to wake up. We got to wake up. We got to wake up. We got to wake up to the reality. That the judge is coming. Guys, the flood is coming. It's coming. It's coming. Judgment is coming. We don't have a lot of time left. We don't have a lot of time left. I was speaking with James Kim the other day, and he was talking about how the heads of the, mission, the top missions organizations around the world are saying that all the nations of the world, all the ethnos of the world... They're projecting that the whole world is going to be reached by the year 2033. Guys, that's 10 years from now. What did Jesus say in Matthew 24? The gospel of this kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the nations as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. 
Jesus says, once my gospel has been reached, has been spread across the world to all nations, the end will come. If that is right, if that is true, it's not just a possibility, it's a probability that Jesus will come in our lifetime. Think about that. We don't have a lot of time left. And when the Lord returns, when the king returns to judge the earth, how will he find you? Will you be found faithful? Will you be found waiting, expectantly anticipating his return? Will you be found faithful to his word? God, help us. God, help us. Yes, God. Help us. God, have mercy. God, I pray that you would open blinded minds. God, that you would open the eyes of our hearts that we would see what your word says. That judgment is coming. And one day and one day soon, we will all stand before you. And we will give an account. And on that day, only one thing will matter. It will not matter on that day how much we have in our bank accounts. It will not matter what we have achieved, how far above that, up that ladder we got to climb. It will not matter what we amassed on this earth. The only thing we, that will matter, God, is what we did and how we responded to your word. God, I pray that you would now just pierce our hearts with this truth. God, I pray for the church. I pray for those who know you. God, I pray that you would awaken us from slumber. God, those of us that are, that are going through the motions. God, I pray that in your kindness you would bring us repentance. God, bring us repentance. God, forgive us. Forgive us for our neglect of your word. God, forgive us for neglecting your word in our lives. Forgive us, God. And I pray, God, that you would awaken us in us a desire for your word again. God, would you stir up a hunger in us 
or your word. That we would be students of your word. That we would love your word. That we would consume your word. Be shaped by your word. So that we might be a people who stand on your word. And God, I pray for those in this room that do not know you. God, I pray that you would would bring godly conviction. That one day they're going to stand before you. And again, the only thing that will matter is what they did with you. And I pray, God, that you would bring them to the knowledge of Christ. God, please open their eyes right now. Open their eyes right now. God, bring them to the saving knowledge of Christ. That they might be forgiven. That they might be reconciled to God. That they might live forever in heaven with you. In Jesus' name. At this time, we're going to partake in communion.